Bridges. Welcome to Bridge City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action. My name is Benjamin Rangel. I'm Kyle Hagee. And I'm Sam Woods. Well, we got a treat for you all today. It's a feast, okay? <laughs> and our episode today is just a small lesson in civics. Yes, this is our civic engagement episode. And as you all might or might not know, there are some upcoming elections. That's right, August 14th is the spring partisan primary for a variety of statewide and federal level representatives. And November 6th is the general election. But we want to be clear here at Bridges City that there are more than just elections when it comes to getting civically engaged. I would say if you're politically enraged, the only solution is to get civically engaged. Whoa, that's a new soundbite. Yeah, patent pending. (laughs) Yes, so we want you all to know why and how to get involved before then. We at Bridges City believe that having a civically engaged population is the key to making Milwaukee the best place it can be. And we talked to a number of experts on this episode that can help with just that. So to start us off, we thought it would be good to highlight some of the limitations of government and some foundational information about where our city's resources come from in order to set the stage. Our first guest is one of the best people to talk to when it comes to understanding the structure and nature of our city. And refreshingly, he does not come with any partisan or political biases. My name's Rob Hankin. I'm the president of the Wisconsin Policy Forum. We are a fiercely nonpartisan public policy think tank slash research organization. And I joined the Public Policy Forum 10 years ago. It was a great fit for me. I got into this line of work because I'm a policy wonk. Uh, Trying to address vexing public policy problems is something that turns me on. Doing good analysis and framing public policy decisions in an intelligent, thoughtful way is what drives me. And so this job as the head of a public policy think tank was, was really made for me. And, and I would add uh, for a nonpartisan public policy think tank that really is about effective government. And did you see a lot of these ideological divides inhibit functioning government? And, and that's what kind of made you say, I need to do something that's nonpartisan so people can agree on what the facts are? It was certainly part of it. Uh, My last years in county government was the start of a very difficult time in that government. Uh, Now Governor Walker was then county executive and obviously had some very strong uh, conservative views. Because of the political differences, the policymakers, I think, on all sides lost sight of the fact that really their jobs were to oversee an administrative structure, a county government that isn't partisan. It's nonpartisan. It's it's there to just deliver services on behalf of state government to Milwaukee County residents. And they let their politics get in the way of that. And it created a high level of dysfunction. And for me, yes, it did create uh, frustration. So I had the privilege of uh, attending the On the Issues event that you were at at Marquette when you were discussing the uh, piece of research about the tax structure and how in Wisconsin, I think you literally said the tax structure is broken. Can you talk a little bit about what did that report say when voters are going to the polls this um, this year? Uh, how important is it that they're thinking of what people's platforms are on taxation? So this uh, specific report that you're referring to dealt with city government. The structure that we have in place in the state of Wisconsin under which we finance local governments, municipal governments in particular, it's been around for a long time and it is extremely unique. And and so the unique feature of this feature of this structure is that we 
have said to our local governments, we the state are going to be re extremely restrictive in terms of the local revenue options that you may pursue. So you may think that a city sales tax is a good idea or a city income tax is a good idea, and the mayor and the council may be willing to expend the political capital to try to do that, but right now they can't because state law says that the only comprehensive local revenue option that cities can use is the property tax. Now at the same time, and one of the rationales for this is not just that the people in state government were being mean, but they said, look, we're going to preserve for the state the ability to use an income tax and a sales tax. And, but our pledge to you, our local governments, is that as the revenues collected from those taxes and coming into state coffers increase, we're going to share a portion of those revenue increases with our local governments. So we're going to make sure that you don't have a need to have your own local sales or income taxes. And so what we have seen is that the city's ability to see its revenues increase at the rate of inflation has, has not been possible. And so where we come down, and I hope I'm not sounding partisan in saying this, but there, there ought to be an expectation if you appreciate the level of service that you're getting today from your city government, that for your city government to maintain that level of service, there needs to be some inflationary revenue increases. The, the cost of providing services grows up. So if your revenues never give you that type of growth, yet your expenditure needs you can't do much about, city government has no control over the price of fuel or the price of health care regionally, then something has to give, and that means service levels have to diminish. And so if taxpayers want to say that's okay, I'm, I'm willing to accept lower service levels, that's their prerogative. But in this case, people don't want lower service levels. They somehow magically want city government to be able to do this. And, and so what we found out is this is highly unique. We are the only one of 39 peer cities. Every city across the country with a population between 300,000 and a million, every other one of them has local sales tax authority, either for a general sales tax or selective sales taxes on restaurant purchases or hotel motel rooms or whatever. Milwaukee is the only one that doesn't. And so that's simply what we pointed out. And so we think that that's a situation that deserves attention from policymakers and that deserves some change. And it may not just be enacting new taxes in the city of Milwaukee. Part of this could come down to, to using that as an opportunity to lower property taxes. So wherever you come down on the taxing versus spending issue, we're not necessarily saying that the the, the net taxation needs to go up. We're saying that the, the types of taxation should be more diverse. One of the primary reasons for that is that we have all of these people every day inhabiting the city of Milwaukee because they work here or they come here for a Bucks game or a Brewers game or for our variety of entertainment. And yet they, and, and so they're using city services. They're using city roads. They're safe because city police are here, but they are not paying anything to support their use of city services because there's no sales tax. So I'm a suburbanite. I bought my lunch today here in the city of Milwaukee. None of the sales tax went to city government. Other than the rare times when I receive parking tickets, I'm not paying a cent to support the city services that I use. So if the city's tax structure is broken and partisanship at the state level is hindering pragmatic solutions, who are the people in charge locally? Who are those trying to overcome these challenges? Well, luckily, Bridges City found two of them, and here they are. Michael Murphy, I'm alderman who represents the 10th aldermanic district in the city of Milwaukee. My name is Jose Perez. I'm the alderman of the 12th district. So my parents are immigrants. So I'm first in my family to be born in the United States. And my parents came to the United States from um, Ireland in 1960. 
and we uh, grew up here in the city of Milwaukee, all uh, five children, uh, all attended uh, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. But we grew up with a sense of uh, responsibility. That was the key thing my parents impressed upon us, is a, a, a sense of uh, obligation we had to the country that has provided us so much uh, in terms of opportunities. There was always a sense of public service. For my own personal interest in politics, it really came about a later stage in my life when um, I was helping a friend of mine who was a district attorney who ran for office. He uh, asked if I would like to work for him while I went to graduate school. Ended up finding I really enjoyed working with people and um, working on local issues. And then subsequently, when he ran for higher office, I ran for his seat in 1989. So I've been in office now, coming up on uh, over 29 years, longer than the two of you have been alive. (laughs) I've had the great opportunity to chair every committee, uh, including being president of council, and now I currently am um, uh, serving in my eighth term. I come from a single-parent family. My mother is a uh, retired MPS principal. I'm very proud of the work she did. My grandparents are um, they migrated from Puerto Rico here back in 1950. That's that's my kind of orientation to the near south side. I grew up on 5th and Pierce, 10th and Walker. Kind of a rough neighborhood to be in. Um, my mom tried her best, but she was working and going to school. My grandparents pitched in, and they tried their best. I think about now raising my kids, and it's like, there ain't nothing you're going to get by me, right? You can't. You can't hustle a hustler, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it was a little different with my grandparents. So, um, and then came up in the neighborhood. Um, uh, was interesting through my church. I had gotten involved with community organizing, and I had seen someone from high school who sat me down and kind of pushed and prodded me around. You know, what are you doing, right? And what do you see community like? And it was interesting that uh, I, I may have thought I had an idea, but when I really heard myself say it out loud. I realized it wasn't much. I owe a lot to her and I owe a lot to Micah, which my congregation was a part of at that time that kind of worked my leadership and sent me to some really good community organizing training that um, encouraged me to get involved in you know, the, this, this public arena, right? Because you're either a player or a spectator and I had to decide which, I, which one I wanted to be. So. All right, Kyle, we've gone too long. What the hell is an alderman and what did they do? Well, that's a great question, Ben. You know, in, in many respects, the word alderman is um, kind of a unique word. Most cities call them council members. Mm-hmm. But an alderman here in the city of Milwaukee, um, there's 15 aldermen. It's a nonpartisan position. I represent an area approximately between 42 and uh, 40,000 people. Um, an alderman really has two functions. One is a legislator who help make laws. And the other is really served as an omnibusman. It's somebody who really works with his constituents to resolve city problems or city issues. But we have a plethora of issues that we deal with in local government. I think in many respects, we are probably the closest to the public in terms of government in really all branches, uh, mainly because we touch the lives of citizens on a daily basis in terms of services we provide, whether it's police and fire, sanitation, street plowing, water, building inspection. These are daily issues that people deal with in their lives. The good thing about it is a, a funny anecdote is I had citizen call me and say, give me an issue uh, involving a federal issue and, and, and went through the length with that. And I said, listen, I, I'm, I'm not a federal representative, but I, I mean, I'll have to contact your representative. Well, they're way too busy. That's why I'm calling you. Um, <laughs> and, and in many ways, I laughed at that, uh, but it is true. I mean, you're not going to pick up the phone and call your congressman and have them answer it. You know, I think I can say with some confidence that, you know, the reason I've been fortunate to be reelected as many times as I have is because I, I recognize the importance of constituent service. So I know a lot of people based on um, 
you know, responding to their complaints and problems, um, that they feel they can get something done. Mm-hmm. And that's where good government is supposed to be. Perfect. Now Ben knows what an alderman is and what they do. But I'm still wondering, what issues are on the docket currently, and how has Milwaukee gone about addressing one hot-button issue in particular, gentrification? You know, we're concerned about, as development spreads north and south from downtown, like people on the south side feel, oh, there's all this gentrification and displacement happening. And there is a lot of development going on in Walker's Point, but it hasn't displaced anybody. So one, we want to make sure the development has some affordable housing to it, and it's really affordable, but at the same time, we want to look at where's the real data. So some of the stigma on the near south side is Latinos are being displaced, and there's a big piece on gentrification. We're like, okay, it, it may feel that way, and shiny buildings are going up, but technically, no one's getting pushed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we want to be conscious of uh, making sure people aren't priced out, that the infrastructure is solid there, and that people, um, if they want to stay, stay. And if, if you move, make sure it's on your own accord, not yeah. because you feel some pressure on your back or even predatory real estate developers. When you talk about affordable housing and displacement, um, gentrification, the whole nine, I, I think you guys pay attention as that evolves. Yeah. They're going to present it to a zoning and neighborhood development. So both aldermen had thoughts on getting out the votes uh, and the impact that individuals, particularly at the local level, can have and, and how important your vote is. Yes, your vote matters. And in a bit, you'll actually hear that Alderman Perez won by a very slim margin. And, and Alderman Murphy even discusses how those in power uh, can sometimes even benefit from people not showing up on election days. Well, I mean, I think people don't realize uh, sometimes um, their voices can be really uh, loud and listened to. And they, they can make a difference, especially at a local government level. You know, does it take a you know a group of ten or twelve or that's that certainly happens in local government and in state government. But I, I do want to let people know individual voices can be heard. You can get some really very thoughtful, good ideas from one or two people and, and it doesn't take as much as you think it does, and people can have an impact. They can really make changes, and they either they can do it through their neighborhood organization that they may be involved with. If I could say anything to your listeners, is that you know elected officials they do know who votes and who doesn't vote. Let me assure you of that. Unfortunately, because so many people don't vote, the individuals who do vote, their voices are echoed even louder. Um, and the reality is, is that if we just would get more people to participate, it would force politicians to listen more. The dangerous thing we see is obviously where people don't vote, and then special interest money can have such an overwhelmingly negative impact. So in some respects, people who have power and money, they don't want you to vote. We had, a, you know, obviously a great turnout with um, President Obama's election. It does run in cycles. You know, it depends on the issues, depends on the elections. Um, the elections for school board candidates, they have a bigger budget than the city of Milwaukee, and um, yet... The turnout at their election sometimes could be 8%. You know, we generally see turnout, you know, depending on the um, elections, you know, 40 to 60%. And, and then, of course, it depends on presidential election year, too. But I, I, I would just say, you know, people count on you not voting. If you don't want to have your voices heard, best thing you can do, don't vote. I mean, if you want to participate and make a difference, you know, vote regularly. Uh, look, and, and if we're talking about civic engagement, um, we never have enough of it, right? So one of the goals that we have in our office is that we feel that if we 
we provide some some good service. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get people engaged or keep them engaged. Um, sometimes people don't like the answers, don't like the outcome, uh, but we try our best and we want to give people good service. Um, and if and if we're not, we want to know about it so we can improve that. Uh, we feel that's one of the best ways to get pe- people civically engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, every vote counts. Um, I won my election, my first election in 2012 by 86 votes. That was a big deal, right? An incumbent hadn't been hadn't lost in over a decade until that happened. Uh, and then I, I told myself, I, I, we got to change the way we do business. And when I got reelected in 16, I won with 70% of the vote and I won every single ward. And some of them were by a small margin, but I could say I won every ward. Yeah. And, and we thought, you know, people are liking, feeling what we're doing, and we got to continue that. And like I said, you know, some stuff falls through the cracks or we're not perfect. Uh, don't want to give anyone that idea, but we try our best. And if, and if you're not engaged talking to us, uh, we can't improve what we're doing. So a lot of people promulgate this idea that government is ineffective or slow. But in our conversations, we heard about some accomplishments and some thoughts about the future of Milwaukee. I'm extremely proud of the, of the library that we have on 9th Mitchell. Uh, from the moment I got elected, I, I started hounding the library director. It is, I think, um, not only a state-of-the-art library, but it's become the library that everyone wants in their neighborhood now, we're lucky enough that the, the allotted library budget went a lot longer redeveloping a building than it being part of a new construction. Mm-hmm. So we had a big footprint to work with, and that budget just, we maxed out that budget there, and um, friends of the library pitched in, but that is just a signature uh, catalytic project, not only for Mitchell Street, but it set the tone, I think, for how you redevelop libraries and uh old buildings and it's the largest branch outside of downtown at 23,000 square feet Uh, with not only books and a mezzanine and a community room and conference rooms but it also has a recording studio makerspace kitchen and uh, we're just we're just extremely proud of of that and then the other thing is is that we're doing innovative ways for young people like I'm one of the co-sponsors with Alderman Rainey who's sponsoring hip-hop week and part of hip-hop week is not only do we want to educate our young people on financial literacy, on health, but it's a big voter education and registration drive. And uh, we can tie it into hip-hop, what young people like, the feeling. Uh, you know, recently the articles talked about how it surpassed every genre of music. Yeah. It's being the most popular one. And so we want to meet young people where they're at. Uh, we want them to have fun, but at the same time create an opportunity for for some education and in some cases some agitation, right? We want to get people fired up about what's going on in their community and taking ownership of it, um, and so we can move we can move young people to start thinking about. It. There is a bright future for Milwaukee, but um, I think you cannot step back and acknowledge that um, with the deep poverty, specifically the poverty of both the African American and Latino community. You know, having a permanent underclass, you know, with um, one segment of our community has been a struggle, and not addressing that issue face forward is, I think, a concern. So making sure people have choices and options, and fairly so, I think will be really important for um, both local, state, and um, federal government to make sure those options are available for people and so that there is a, a fair play in terms of them having that, uh, that opportunity. Um, because, you know, you don't really want a city where you have, uh, you know, a really vibrant near downtown and then the, the area, the rest is falling apart. So there's an old um, poem 
um, uh, from Yates is uh, the center cannot hold. And if, if you can't, your city's not going to make it. With the educational institutions we have here, um, with the natural resources we have, and the human potential in our community, we could be a world-class city. We wanted to find out how, in Alderman Perez's words, one becomes a player rather than a spectator. We decided to talk to one Marquette University professor. Amber Wachowski, I'm Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette, and I direct the Marquette Democracy Lab. My focus tends to be on political behavior, urban uh, politics, and inequality. We know that one of the easiest ways to become a player is to vote, and both aldermen bemoaned low voter turnout. Luckily, Dr. Wachowski has some ideas about what can be done about it. Go to on-cycle elections. So we have off-cycle elections. We know that turnout is really, really low in cities that hold their elections separate from from national, from federal and state elections. So you want to increase turnout dramatically in local elections. Have an election on the same day as as a presidential election or a state election. This is something that the Common Council could vote to change when a local election is held. You know, in some cases, cities and kind of status quo benefits from from having low turnout elections. Anytime you're broadening and expanding the electorate, incumbents are going to be made more vulnerable. Um, so you can see that there's a bias um, toward the status quo built in. But we, we know when cities have on-cycle elections, turnout is higher. You tend to have more representative um, common councils. Minority candidates are more likely to run and win office. And some evidence that residents are happier with government services when there's high electoral engagement in local elections. So this seems like a, a very easy solution. Uh, why don't people just rally around this idea uh, on electoral reform? Well, Dr. Wachowski highlights that it's not as simple as it seems. Any sort of pushing to change the, the status quo runs into a real collective action challenge. So, you know, I, yeah, I might be sympathetic to having on-cycle elections, but I don't know, it takes a lot of time. You know, I'm, I'm busy. Maybe I've got a lot, you know, other priorities. I'm not sure where it ranks in terms of all the issues. And I don't know, maybe there's someone else out there that'll kind of fight the good fight. And so getting over that can be really difficult. This is where kind of the community organizing matters so much um, to get over that collective action hurdle in a sense that by me acting as an individual in concert with others, I could actually bring about change. And so, so yes, it is as simple as getting uh, people together, but there's also kind of the first the, the step that happens before that, which is really thinking about the consciousness kind of raising, the organizing, the, the mobilizing um, people to get over that. And that's going to be difficult because we're talking about places where, again, less than a quarter of the voting age adults mm -hmm. are, are engaged in yeah. local electoral politics. Another way to become a player is to get involved in community-based organizations. Here, Dr. Wachowski explains what those are and how they get their resources. She made us think about where does the role of government start and end? I mean, from a community-based organization perspective, obviously the, the resource question is huge for them. You know, a lot of them are very grant-dependent, foundation-supported. Um, the city gets a community development block grant from the federal government. 
And then the city kind of farms it out to community-based organizations to do their work, whether it's a boys and girls club or another kind of place-based organization. Organizations differ. Some organizations are, we think of like social service entities. They're providing services. They're like the front line of, of government and almost like an extension of government. Other organizations are trying to take a multi-pronged approach. They might be focused on just a particular geography. You know, I'm thinking about kind of the Zilber Family Foundation, the way in which they've targeted neighborhoods, and the idea is just to try to get a a more encompassing set of of programs and really try to improve the quality of life in a confined, you know, contained geography. One surprising aspect of community-based organizations is the hostile or competitive nature of their environment. Of course, the majority of them have their community's best interests at heart, but they are also aware that there is competition among them. Dr. Wachowski explains this dynamic. You know, one of the more devastating studies that I've read, and I've, I've, I've been curious about whether or not this affects cities like Milwaukee, which is how do community organizations collaborate with one another and kind of work in tandem or not? And this research suggests that in like really segregated communities, community-based organizations are really territorial it kind of cuts against the the way in which they might collaborate or work together. You know, so that's one possible uh, challenge. You know, the second is also the role of community-based organizations and the ways in which they're either kind of an extension of, of the state and government or to what extent do they shake things up a bit and try to change the power dynamics in a city. I think we get real mixed evidence on on this. And part of this is, you know, community organizations are cash-strapped. They really are looking to, to find sustainable sources of funding. Dr. Wachowski talked about the CBOs in more of the abstract. So we wanted to, to get to the heart of the matter and actually talk to a community-based organization here in Milwaukee. So we sat down with Keith Stanley, the executive director of Near West Side Partners, which is a community-based organization made up of five anchor institutions, Marquette, Harley-Davidson, Aurora Healthcare, Miller Coors, and Potawatomi Business Development Corporation. To find out exactly what he and the Near West Side partners do. The mission of Near West Side is simple. Sustain, revitalize. When I mention sustain, there's a lot of great things in the Near West Side. Brewery tour at Miller Coors, the Ambassador Hotel for Brunch, the Five O'Clock Steakhouse, Troop Cafe, the Games at Marquette University, the Pat Expansion. And the reason I bring that up is because we want to sustain all of that and more. 5,000 people come across the street where we're being interviewed right now. 5,000 people go to concerts across the street at the Rave Eagles Club every weekend. The place is packed. And so we want to sustain all that economic and cultural activity. We also want to revitalize certain areas within our commercial corridors that have issues, and we recognize that. And the way we execute that is we look at four strategic focus areas. Number one is safety. We look at housing. Also, we look at a commercial core development. And the other things we do a lot of recruitment. We recruited over the past two years, 18 new businesses. So safety, housing, commercial core development, and the last one, which is key, is branding. And we do branding by taking a look at the assets of the community and promoting the assets of the community. We see there's a value, and it's really our featured program, P-A-R-C, Promoting Assets, Reducing Crime. PARC is a multi-million, multi-year program that the anchor institutions have supported. It focuses on those two key areas, promoting the assets of our community and reducing the crime. And there's a lot of funding that goes towards. We have our own security ambassadors. We have an assistant district attorney 
directly dedicated towards the New York City. Like, there's no other community has that. Thinking back to Rob Hankins' points about the role of the state legislators in Madison in providing resources to the city of Milwaukee, we asked Keith if he thought he was limited by decisions in Madison. Decisions that are made at Madison directly impact the city of Milwaukee and the work that we do. However, it's about alignment. And I use that term because I think that our organization, along with many across the city, we just have to align ourselves with legislation that makes sense for us. Nothing is black and white. We have to look at everything individually, analyze it on a case-by-case basis and see how that affects us. And then, and that's like the nuance though. That's mm-hmm. the sausage making, as they say, that's the, the nuances of government. But that's something that's always on our radar. And if we get a ping from either a stakeholder, from an elected official that says, hey, you guys want to take a look at this, or if I'm reading a paper or one of our staff members reading a paper, hey, this has popped up, you guys want to take a look at this. And we try to take the time and dedicate to it. And sometimes you have to figure out what is in the best interest of your organization. So you can definitely stand on the bully pulpit and say, I disagree and blah, blah, blah. You know, but what is in the best interest of your organization and the people that you serve? We asked Keith for a concrete example of something that Near West Side Partners accomplished in concert with the legislative branch. 2006, I think it was, I sent a letter to Mayor Tom Bear regarding a Judy's Red Hots located at 27th and Kilbourne. This was definitely a liability. I think they calculated over over 250 calls for service from Milwaukee Police Department in one year. It was so bad there was a shootout where they found a hundred shell case. Um, so conversations began to bubble up with the residents, with our state representative, and then our anchor institutions took hold with it and ran and said, what can we do? Having conversations with some state legislators, Working closely with Evan Goyke, we proposed state legislation. We worked with both sides of the aisle. And uh, ultimately, we had a bill signing at Aurora Healthcare in April of 2016 with Governor Walker signing a bill that will allow us to basically shut down that, that business. Businesses in the near west side and residents in the near west side want the same thing. Now, with that said, though, I think that there's some demystification that needs to occur. From the business side, I think a lot of times, this, has, this isn't a near west side thing. I think this is across the country where people will look at some of these urban corridors like, ah, I'm a little nervous. I don't know what's there. Once you dig in and you are able to walk to your um, podcast appointment and you can see what's happening, you're comfortable in the environment, you can go to the store, you begin to pull back some of those stereotypes that you have. So you hear some people say, I don't go to Milwaukee because it's unsafe. Like, then you don't know Milwaukee. But there's also demystification, I think, also on the resident side that uh, sometimes they view the anchors as uh, banks, for lack of a better term. Oh, you know, you guys got all this money, just write some checks. And we all know they have shareholders, uh, profits, margin, profit margins to take a look at. And on top of that, you know, sometimes we have to lay off. And so, you know, they have their own realities that these anchors deal with. And so navigating that so that the businesses understand the perspective of the residents and how great and beautiful this community is and all the assets and the memories and the traditions and the cultures in this neighborhood is also associated with, at the same time, then the residents also understanding that uh, our institutions are institutions and they're trying to do the best that they see with the resources they have. And, and they can't be holding to, you know, just writing checks all the time. 
The problem that we have sometimes is who am I to tell a single mother who's working a part-time, maybe a full-time job, making minimum wage with three kids that you need to spend two, three hours out of your week coming to community meetings to make your community better? We don't ask that of my brothers and sisters who have six figures or more living in suburbs. But we're going to ask a single mother or a single father or struggling parent in general that you should come to a meeting if you want to make a community better. So we do recognize that sometimes people just can't do it. It's important for us to reach out to people who can be served by traditional formats. And we try our best to do that. And it's difficult. You know, come to us with ideas. We'll see if we can find money for you. We did it with... Uh, Cold Spring Park, they were looking for a green space, and we were able to put together a green space project for them. We found the money, we found the partners, all they came with was the idea, what they had a passion for. So Keith Stanley's work is almost entirely driven by the desire to improve a specific community in Milwaukee, namely the near west side. But in addition to doing community work, we wanted to give you all some insight on how to get engaged politically, which is uh, another form of civic engagement. So we sat down with the political director of one such organization. My name is Max Love, grew up in Lodi, Wisconsin, small town just north of Madison. Our Wisconsin Revolution is basically the continuation of the Bernie Sanders campaigns. Our goal is to bring his ideas and narrative to, to Wisconsin, mainly working with people in their communities. So similar to the, the podcast and trying to get people involved, we want to get people involved locally first and then on state races and, and state politics. We're statewide, independent, membership-driven, and democratic popular. So let me tell you what each of those mean. So statewide, we have 26 chapters around the state. And the goal, again, is to focus on issues that matter in those areas. So when, when I say democratic popular, I mean we are focusing on issues that actually have a broad majority support in this country. Healthcare for all, education, you know, free education, protecting the environment, clean and healthy, clean and healthy environment, and a clean and healthy democracy. Independent, we're not a member of a party. Um, we're not working with a party. We are independent of all parties in Wisconsin. And member-driven, so we're practice what we what we seek, which is internal democracy, one member, one vote. It doesn't cost anything to be a member up until this point, so you come to a meeting or get on the email list and you get a vote in the organization. One unique feature of OWR is its emphasis on the rural communities of Wisconsin. And our conversation began by talking about the supposed rural-urban divide that is often cited in media and politics. This is a really tricky conversation because it's really about identity, and that's really important to a lot of people. People feel like they're not getting their fair share. They feel like they're not getting their share of resources. They're doing more and more every year to survive and put food on the table. Being from a a small town, which is in a rural area, not necessarily in the top two-thirds of the state, but certainly what I would say is a rural area, I saw people struggling. I just talked to the farmer I worked for when I was growing up, and he said, it's hard. You know, milk prices aren't high. And so I see that kind of struggle going on, and and I think what Bernie did was speak to that struggle. Um, But I really want to kind of push back on the idea of the divide, right, because I think it's a self-perpetuating thing. And if we're not getting out as I love living in cities, but I also love living in the country, if we're not getting out as people who live in cities and talking to folks and vice versa. I mean, we say there's an urban bubble. We say that Madison is however many square miles surrounded by reality. There's bubbles that exist in other places, too. And look, I was out last night at an alumni basketball tournament in my hometown of Lodi and was at the uh, bar afterward where they were kind of celebrating the day. And, uh, you know, it was like 100 people in this tiny country bar. And a guy I hadn't seen in 10 years who served in the military, who we had uh, deleted each other off Facebook because we had disagreed like eight years ago. I went up to him. I said, hey, man, I'm really sorry if I ever said anything on Facebook that offended you. And he's like, look, I don't I don't get offended. It's fine. You know, but we quickly got into this conversation about gun control. And 
you know, I wanted to have that conversation. It was very clear that he wanted to have that conversation. And we had a very respectful, interesting conversation. We didn't necessarily walk out of that conversation seeing eye to eye, but I totally understood more about where he was coming from. And you can't have that type of conversation on Facebook. And you also, it's really hard to have that type of conversation without that kind of personal relationship beforehand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we say divide, I think it, it almost sometimes self-perpetuates and we need to challenge ourselves to get outside of our comfort zones too. If somebody's listening to this and they're like, oh, there's an election coming up. I should probably know who's running in it. Who are these dozen or so gubernatorial candidates on the left? Um, so we are doing this campaign, Wisconsin's Choice. What we're trying to do is not just put candidates up on a stage. We actually want voters to be able to talk to the candidate, get to know the candidate. I had a woman come up to me and, and her comment defined it. Like, I felt like I got to actually know the candidate. Whereas, you know, you go, the candidates aren't this like, and the same thing for Bernie. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not any different than us. They're probably wearing underwear, maybe. <laughs> uh, I hope that's not any violation of podcast. Uh, no, There's no rules on okay. podcast. No, no, no. <laughs> underwear. So, okay, on underwear. Um, so, you know, uh, they're probably wearing underwear. They're probably, they probably got their own story. Um, they're a person too, you know. We can't have, and I think, and we need to flip that narrative back from it being candidate-centric to being people-centric. I had a guy, I texted about our, we did a forum yesterday in Eau Claire that was, um, and I was, I was texting him and he said, I'm not coming to that because big money has already decided the election. And I said, oh, man. And I was like, I was going back at him. I'm like, no, we really need you there. There's like 12 candidates. And by the end of the text thread, he said, OK, I'll be there. Right. And and people just need to know that even though we're it's, it's like kind of a double edged sword, we need to communicate with people about how corporations and money have captured our elections, but also that we still have a vote. I know it can be really intimidating. For most people to talk about politics, yeah. with especially with like random people, if you ever do like phone banking, you don't know who's going to pick up on yep. the other end of the line. How would you encourage people or train people who hear this and they're like, "I'm sold. Like politics are important, and I want to go out and talk to people, but I'm I've never done it before. I'm really scared to do it." Yep. What's a What's the best way to approach? getting into that. Well, you sound like a lot of our members because honestly, a lot of our folks, they're like they're either that moderate Republican who decided, "Oh, whoa, Trump is this is not my party anymore." They're the person who was never involved until Trump got elected. They're the Bernie Sanders voter who's like activated by Bernie, or they're like some of the folks I was just meeting with here in Milwaukee who've been doing this since one of the guys said 1948. <laughs> He's been doing politics since 1948. Got another 88 year old uh, on our on our steering committee yeah. here. It's an amazing. It's a beautiful thing when you have like you know a couple 20 year olds all the way up until an 88 year old and the beautiful kind of synergy that comes with that. And part of it is that those folks who have been doing it, and you know I've been doing this for a couple years now. We need to work with new folks. We need to um, practice. It's a muscle that gets flexed. Look, I still get stage fright when I go to my first door, but I hit my first door and I'm like, that was great. Even if they were frustrated. Usually it ends with them just saying, I don't want to talk about it. And you go to the next door. It's also a numbers game, right? So if you get this perspective, like if I can do, you know, X number of doors, that results in X number of votes. And that could actually, we got a, a John, um, Con Con Alderman John Tate in, in Racine mm -hmm. who just ran for state assembly. You know, let's focus on a city council race. He won by five votes. I want to say it was four, four or five, votes. four yep. votes. Yeah. Yep. If anybody ever tells you elections don't matter and their vote doesn't matter, point to those elections. We need to help those folks. It's, again, a muscle. Like, they need to be practicing. We do trainings for OWR where it's literally just let's practice a canvas. Let's, you pretend like you're a really, really diehard Republican. You're never going to want to talk to me. Let's just play that out. Let's see how it goes. Get them comfortable. So if you've been listening to Max and are inspired to get more involved with OWR, he's going to lay out how to do just that. 
anybody across the state can start a chapter. We look for like five people to say, we want to do this. Uh, you get some support from the state organization, access to resources. We're helping people buy equipment to do voter registration right now. Again, we're really trying to push resources and stuff back to local communities to, to be doing this. And then uh, myself and the new staff will be travel, traveling around and kind of helping folks with that. You can tweet at us, you know, you can, uh, our, our, our Wisconsin Rev, um, you know, there's lots of ways to get in touch. I think, again, part of it is, you know, we exist to help people and to have a, my goal is always let's have a structure. Let's have something in place where people can easily get plugged in um, that enables them also to make decisions, but but do the work. And I think once this election is over, our Wisconsin revolution is not going away. I mean, all of next year will be Let's canvas in our communities to do listening canvases. Let's talk about healthcare for all. Let's get out and actually talk to people. Um, and and what we see a lot is uh, electoral organizations really pulling back in times when there aren't elections due to the way funding works, due to the way excitement works. And we have to, again, manifest that excitement in, in a large degree. So we just heard from a variety of experts in the field of civic engagement. Yeah, one such expert gave us some excellent advice. If you are politically enraged... You get civically engaged. Pat and Pendy. In all seriousness, we hope you were inspired by at least one of our actual guests, uh, if not all of them. But this is Bridge the City, where sound bites aren't solutions. So we instructed all of our guests to leave you. That's right, you. With some action steps. I think that the best, the, the, one of the foremost things that citizens can do to effectuate change and, and, and to be active is to be informed. There's a there's a great quote, while we all have the right to criticize government, we also have an obligation to know what we're talking about. And so being informed can be difficult. When you look at our traditional news media and the fact that they've cut back so much and that it, it, it is impossible, and this is no offense to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, but, but really the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel is devoting far fewer pages to covering local government than it ever has. So it's tough for citizens to be informed. So the shameless self-promotion is go to our website. And I'm not saying that we should be your only source of information. Uh, but I, again, we hope uh, that people will go to wispolicyforum.org. Uh, the beauty of the Public Policy Forum is while we are a membership organization and we urge any of the listeners to look at membership, all of the information we put out, all of the research and reports we put out, we are available to anyone. You just need to go to the website. So that's my foremost advice. And again, we like to think that in our small way, we also can, can feed into that. One, um, I think if, if you're talking to people on your own block that are having the same issues or concerns that you are, I mean, I think if you're the person talking to them and pushing and prodding them about what do you want to do, let's work together for solutions, to me, you become... An immediately an immediate player, um, driving those conversations, trying to figure out a solution, uh, making phone calls, bringing people together. I mean, to me, that's just a starter. If I could give any advice, you raise your hand. I mean, not raise your hand. You, if someone says, "Hey, can you be here?" Yes. Can you be a part of this? Yes. Can you be on this board? Yes. Can you do this? Your brand is so important, and the way you develop your brand is by connecting with people. You connect with people by saying, "Hey, I'll be a part of this. Hey, I go to do this. I do that." A little field trip. Go check out the <laughs> a Common Council um, uh, hearing or go down to the courthouse. One thing I'd say, and this does relate to our whole conversation, I mean, we need more young people running for office, too. Like, you know, you guys, I mean, I'm not saying you need to run right now, but, like, we need people to run because uh, it's really tough. It's like this thing that, you know, it feels like this really insurmountable problem because you see younger people our age uh, maybe not caring as much as we'd want them to care. 
and we have to figure out how we get out there and inspire them. We are faced with a future that is going to be fundamentally worse than the ones our parents were faced with, right? Like it is, it is not a stretch to say that. And that's scary. So if there are young people listening, which I'm sure there are, you know, I would just challenge them to, um, to, to, to lead. I really loved all of our interviews for this episode, but my big takeaway goes back to what Dr. Wachowski said about the impact of institutions on voter turnout. Often we think that individuals not turning out and being apathetic is to blame for low turnout, but that is only part of the story. Institutional reforms can be made to increase turnout and get people more engaged, and some of those institutional reforms are pretty straightforward. So in addition to turning out to vote, I think we also have a responsibility to call upon our representatives to make those changes to get more people out to vote. First, I want to thank all of the guests for being on the episode. I think they highlighted all the different ways that you can get involved, whether that's through politics, academia, community, research, etc. Whatever your passion is, you can connect it to engagement with Milwaukee. And I really hope that all of you are thinking of small ways you can make a difference in your community and to help make Milwaukee a more equitable place to live. Something that Rob Hankin said really stuck out to me. We all have the right to criticize government, but we also have the obligation to know what we're talking about. And I think we can take that a step further and say if you want to criticize, then you have an obligation to be part of the solution. I hope listening to this podcast has inspired you to be part of that solution and to help bridge the city. Keith Stanley's emphasis on alignment between the goals of his organization and state and local lawmakers, as well as between the goals of business owners and residents of the near west side, illustrated one of the challenges of getting and staying civically engaged. Being civically engaged necessitates getting out of your own bubble and working with those with different backgrounds and goals. Of course, we should all have clearly articulated limits to our willingness to compromise, but making meaningful social progress often necessitates the acceptance of the fact that we can't always convince everyone to see our truth. Though it's important to celebrate a commitment to civic engagement, one must also understand the challenges, both personal and communal, that come with that commitment. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to heed the action steps. Get informed and prepared for the upcoming elections on August 14th and November 6th. Please visit our website at bridgethecitypodcast.squarespace.com. Follow us on Instagram at Bridge the City Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Bridge the City WI. But most importantly, let us know how you have helped Bridge the City. Bridge the City.